Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two in our series on diamonds. Now, in the previous episode, we focused uh, specifically on one strange question about diamonds, which was, are diamonds in one form or another poisonous? This was the question that originally got me interested in the subject of diamonds. And uh, a brief recap, I came across it because of a passage in the absolutely bonkers autobiography of the 16th century Italian sculptor named Benvenuto Cellini, who told a story, among many other wild and probably heavily embellished tales, about his enemies trying to poison him with the powder of a pounded diamond while he was in prison. And then from there, we examined some other sources from history documenting the uh, documenting and examining the belief that diamonds or diamond powder could be used as a lethal poison. And in the end, it seemed that the, the actual evidence of diamonds being reliably poisonous when swallowed was sort of weak, but not weak enough that I'd just like down a pixie stick full of it, basically. <laughs> it seems there's sort of a dearth of high quality modern evidence one way or the other. It seems kind of doubtful that diamonds are poisonous poisonous, but not doubtful enough that that uh, I would advise eating them. I'd avoid it. <laughs> but we are back today with part two to talk some more about diamonds. That's right. And uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, we, we figured it would be essential to talk a little bit about like what diamonds are and, uh, you know, roll through some material you may be familiar with, or you may may not, you may have forgotten about it, but, uh, you know, where diamonds come from. And, uh, and what some of their major properties are. All right, we'll start with the obvious, and, and this is highly subjective, of course, but it's a popular view on diamonds, and that is they're beautiful. Uh, a diamond receives white light, breaks that white light uh, like a prism, and then these resulting colors hit the various facets of the diamond. What's more, light that enters a faceted diamond, uh, which you can do from all sides, may bounce around in there several times before shining back out again. You know, it actually was making me wonder why sparkling is sort of a, a general stand-in for uh, something that is beautiful or something that catches the attention, you know? Yeah, I think a part, part of it is just that we've all really drunk the Kool-Aid on how beautiful diamonds are, <laughs> uh, not only in our lifetimes, but, but over, the, over centuries and centuries of, uh, of pro-diamond propaganda. Um, because it is interesting to, to, we'll get into this in a bit, like trying to figure out when in history diamonds start becoming gems. Like there's a, there's, there's definitely, definitely seems to be a point, um, in ancient cultures where like oh, a diamond's not a gem, it's useful for cutting gems, but it's not a gem. And then that shifts over time. So we'll get into that more in a bit, but, um, 
in terms of, of light entering the diamond and what it does in there, uh, here's another interesting fact. This is one that I was reading about in an excellent Nova article titled The Science Behind the Sparkle by Robert Hazen. Uh, a diamond actually slows down light uh, inside uh, of itself and does so like no other known colorless substance. So compared to things like ice and water, for example, uh, the author here writes that a diamond slows light down to less than 80,000 miles per second. And that's more than 100,000 miles per second slower than in air. The slowdown, Hazen writes, is complex and has to do with electron interactions and the substance it's traveling through, and it occurs with any matter, including air and glass. And to put it all in context, the speed of light in a vacuum is, of course, 186,000 miles per second. So anyway, you can, you, know, you can crunch the numbers, and I think crunching the numbers makes it actually feel a little more special when you observe the, the sparkle here. But yeah, they do sparkle with an almost otherworldly brilliance. There's a surreal dance of colors. And, and even if you don't desire diamonds for yourself, uh, again, the desire for them is just so entrenched in our culture that it's a part of our language. You know, you were just referencing, like talking about something sparkling, even if it's not a diamond, you're talking about something else, but you're talking about it as if it were a diamond. We talk about things like diamonds in the rough and so forth. Now, here's another thing you definitely already know about diamonds. They're not only beautiful, they're very hard. Diamonds are the hardest naturally occurring substance that we know of. So hard, in fact, that they have numerous industrial applications. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so one thing that has confused me in the past is uh, like the different terminology we use for the strength or resilience of materials. Because we, we of course, use terms like hard and tough and all that in, in an informal way where they all kind of mean the same thing. But mm -hmm. they also have some more specific uh, kind of scientific definitions or definitions in industrial uses. Uh, and it's, I think, illuminating to look at the difference. So what is toughness versus hardness? As usually understood, toughness is the ability of a material to absorb energy without breaking or fracturing, whereas hardness is the ability of a material to resist what's called plastic deformation. In other words, to resist local changes to its shape from friction. So to imagine concrete examples, these changes could be things like cutting, denting, or scratching. So the harder a material is, the more difficult it is to make a scratch or a dent in its surface. Hard materials don't scratch easily. In fact, they scratch other things. And you can usually tell which material is harder by rubbing them together and seeing which one scratches the other. Meanwhile, to come back to toughness, brittleness is the opposite of toughness. The tougher a material is, the more energy it can absorb before it cracks. So rubber is not hard, but it is tough. You might be able to scratch it easily with a knife, but you can also hit it really hard and it won't fracture. Meanwhile, like you said, Rob, a diamond is the hardest naturally occurring substance on Earth. So you can't scratch its surface with a knife or any other normal material apart from another diamond. It is going to be really, really difficult to make a scratch or a cut in a diamond. We, we need special uh, apparatus for doing so. But while it's the hardest natural material on Earth, it is not the toughest. In fact, believe it or not, you can break a diamond with a regular steel hammer and anvil. In fact, uh, before we, I, I just wanted to like gut check myself on this and be like, okay, well, assuming you can do that, I want to see it. I bet there are videos of people doing it like on YouTube. And yep, mm -hmm. you can look them up. People put a diamond on an anvil and smash it with a hammer. It breaks to pieces. Uh, it's not necessarily easy to do, but with the regular steel tools and enough force, you can do it. That's right. And we'll get into some specific examples of, of diamonds being shattered uh, as we proceed here. So yeah, uh, they, they are not indestructible, even though at times our linguistic treatment of diamond and related terms ends up bleeding into that area. Um, and in fact, I have a pretty, I think, amusing comic book example of that here in a bit. Oh, nice. But uh, just to reinforce the, the shorthand on toughness versus hardness, a hard material, it's going to be difficult to cut, dent, or, or scratch. A tough material, it's going to be difficult to break. Now, uh, here's another thing about diamonds that I think everyone, uh, either you, you know this or you've heard it before, or you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, now, now I remember. Okay, we're all carbon-based organisms here, uh, you know, billion-year-old carbon, if you will. 
And uh, another interesting thing to remember about diamonds is that a diamond is actually pure carbon. What we know of as a diamond is actually a crystalline form of carbon, a fact that was discovered for the first time in 1772 by French chemist Anthony uh, Lavoisier, uh, an individual who made numerous contributions to the advancement of chemical and biological sciences before he was executed at the age of 50 on charges of tax fraud and tobacco adulteration. That's adding water to tobacco before sale, by the way. I had to look that up. I was like, what was this guy allegedly doing to his to tobacco? Uh, these were charges that he was exonerated of a year and a half later. But by that point, he was, of course, already dead. Adding water to tobacco. I would think of normally watering down a liquid to adulterate it. I could, maybe tobacco gets soggy, so you can like bulk up the weight by, by getting water in it. I don't know. I guess so. Holding the thumb on the scales one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. But he, but you're saying he, they found that he didn't do it after they killed him. Yeah, yeah. After and and pretty soon after, they were like, actually, our bad on that one. Uh, <laughs> a lot has was written and has been written about how um, this was maybe not a great move because even in his short life, that was obviously cut short uh, by execution, uh, he did make a number of contributions to the advancement of science. Now, speaking of liquids, though, uh, I have to throw in um, in one of our primary sources for this series, Diamonds, an Early History of the King of Gems by Jack Ogden. Um, Ogden points out that during the Renaissance, various philosophers believed that diamonds must be some form of congealed juice or, quote, most pure juice. <laughs> juice of what? I am I was a little unclear on that. Juice of carbon. Juice of carb. <laughs> Uh, that gets us to where do diamonds come from? Uh, naturally occurring diamonds are formed under intense pressure and temperature deep within the earth and then brought to the surface via volcanic action. And diamonds are found in three types of deposits. First of all, you have kimberlite pipes. These are formed by intrusions of magma into the earth's crust, bringing in diamonds, among other things, from the earth's mantle. The pipes themselves tend to be only 100 million years old, while the diamonds they bring up may be anywhere between like 1 and 3.3 billion years old. Um, and then you also have alluvial gravels and glacial tills. So in these, diamonds are released by um, either fluvial or river-based uh, or glacial erosion uh, of the kimberlite matrix. And then they're redeposited in rivers or in a glacial till. This is the sediment moved by a glacier as it moves over, uh, over the course of time. Right. So we need these mechanisms to explain diamonds being brought near to the surface of the Earth because they have to be formed way deep down in, in uh, the Earth's mantle. Or they used to be before Superman, of course. But, but more truthfully, uh, since around the 1950s, uh, we have been able to make synthetic diamonds that are chemically and physically identical to naturally occurring diamonds. But uh, for the longest, yeah, diamonds had to be mined from the earth. And while diamonds occur naturally on every continent and have been mined around the world, historically, and we'll come back to this, there was one place to gather your diamonds, and it was India. Mm, yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I mentioned that I would get into comic books a little bit because um, uh, the connection here is that we should also mention that the word diamond is actually linked directly to uh, X-Man Wolverine's claws and skeleton because you know, I don't have to tell most of you that Logan's uh, retractable claws and bones are said to be coated with the fictional indestructible sci-fi metal known as adamantium. Now, the authors and artists of Marvel Comics did not invent the idea of adamantium. It, it apparently pops up in earlier fictional works, uh, a natural uh, extrapolation of the adjective uh, adamantine which means unyielding or unbreakable, related to the word adamant as well, uh, which uh, this, this was all widely used in pre-Marvel fiction. And of course, all of this extends back to the ancient world as well with writings in Greek and Latin that utilize adamas, either once again figuratively or in reference to some sort of legendary unbreakable stone or gem, such as in some tellings, the substance used to construct the chains that bound uh, Cerberus, the great three-headed hound of Hades. Yeah, so this is worth flagging because it it leads to a confusion that could arise from some ancient sources uh, because in some ancient sources, people talk about something that seems like it could be a diamond, but we're not necessarily positive that's what they're referring to. And in some of these cases, these Latin or Greek writers are using this term atomos, the Latin word atomos derived from the Greek. Um, now, I was also reading about this in, in Ogden, in Diamonds and Early History of the King of Gems. And uh, Ogden talks about how the English word diamond is uh, derived from this Latin word atomos, which in turn came from the Greek. And there's an interesting etymology here. So in Greek, the word dama itself, D-A-M-A, meant something like conquer or tame. Elsewhere, I've read that it had the sense of break, as in the way you would break a horse, like you would tame it. Hmm. So with the negative prefix ah in front of it, that means kind of like un, adama, adamas meant unconquerable, untamable, unbreakable, unalterable. But Ogden says in medieval European sources, 
the the prefix ah starts to disappear from this Latin term adamas, and then we're just left with terms like diamon or diamons, which in English eventually became diamond, but by losing the ah prefix ahead of it, this would mean that according to Greek word logic, it's sort of losing the un in unbreakable, so it's kind of meaning tameable or breakable again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that meaning was lost. It, it at this point just came to mean the gem. But in its usage in ancient Greek and Roman sources, the term adamas may sometimes refer to diamonds, but it also clearly refers to other materials that were considered especially hard or strong. And Ogden calls out things like maybe uh, maybe some sort of early proto-steel or special naturally occurring alloys and grains found alongside gold and ore or other gems. That's right. That's right. Now, to come back to Marvel, um, I was wondering, because again, you know, Marvel's been around long enough that and there, there are so many characters and creatures that everything's been done at least once, surely. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, there's got to be a character that has either diamond claws or a diamond skeleton. And in fact, there does seem to be such uh, a creature. Um, there is a, apparently an alternate timeline where you have a, a fusion of two characters. Uh, this apparently occurs throughout, uh, I think DC and Marvel both get into this, where uh, not only do you have um, variants of different uh, characters and different alternate realities, but you also have fusions of different individuals. So there's one alternate timeline, one alternate uh, Earth or whatever, where you have uh, a single entity that is merged out of Emma Frost, um, aka the White Queen, who has, um, I think, this ability to like shape shift into a diamond form that grants her immunity and invulnerability, especially from like psychic attacks. Mm. And then Wolverine, uh, who we we're just talking about, this single entity who ends up looking like a really posh Wolverine with blonde hair and an eye patch. Uh, his name is Diamond Patch, apparently, or that is his uh, his code name. And he has claws and presumably a skeleton made out of diamond. And if he stabs you with his diamond claws, he can read your mind. <laughs> Why is he called Diamond Patch? He does have an eye patch. Is oh, the he does eye, have a patch. Is yeah. the eye patch made of diamond? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, if, you, if your claws are diamond, maybe you don't want to accessorize, accessorize with diamonds too much. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on diamond patch here. Uh, we'll have to hear from uh, our more devoted comic readers out there. Um, but it does raise all sorts of questions about what it would be like to have a skeleton made out of diamond. Uh, it doesn't sound particularly great if you're going to potentially get into a, you know, some sort of a throwdown with the Hulk or something. I wonder if there's a plot line where he pounds his claws into a powder and then feeds it as poison to somebody. I don't know. I would hope so. I, guess, I mean, but then I guess he has the healing factor, too, so... Uh, what does that mean? Does like the, his powderized bones then reheal into a solid diamond once more? I'm not sure. They they really do do everything in comic books, don't they? The, the, what you were just saying a minute ago is right. Like anytime you imagine, I wonder if somebody's done this. There's like a comic book where somebody did that. Yeah, yeah, it's been done, and it was it was maybe done decades ago, and it's been done a second time. They've revisited it. But that's one of the things I love about about uh, diving into the world of comics. Uh, just there's so much variety. A world where all possible elevator pitches have been realized. That's uh, right. He's made of diamond. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, at this point, let's turn our attention uh, back to the real world and and back specifically to India and ancient India. Uh, again, India is extremely important in the history of diamonds, uh, as, as Ogden points out in the book. Uh, until the 1600s, it was the most important, if not the only source of diamonds in the Mediterranean and European worlds. And Ogden mentions, uh, he, he, has, he has a lot to share about diamonds in this book. This is a ter- terrific book, highly recommend it. Um, at one point, he mentions the, some of the protective aspects of the diamond uh, that, uh, that you, you see appearing in uh, Indian lore at different points, uh, that they may have provided protection against, quote, serpents, tigers, and thieves. Uh, that one gave me a lot of, uh, of pause there because I'm trying to imagine, first of all, are diamonds going to protect you from thieves? That doesn't seem like like a very logical um, idea. Tigers, though, it made me think about, well, okay, a tiger is a, 
um, you know, a, an ambush predator uh, that wants to, uh, to to make sure it has the the most advantageous attack conditions. And you ha- and I have seen you know some compelling evidence about say uh, weighing, ways to deter a tiger attack by having like a fake eyes on the back of your head and so forth, wearing like a mask on the back of your head. Um, and to whatever extent that is useful or not, you could think, well, okay, a diamond glitters. Maybe a diamond does something optical that in some way might make a tiger think twice about attacking you. I'm not sure. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, the sparkling could function kind of like eye spots or just in some other way could disrupt a, a tiger, uh, an ambush predator's sense that attack is now appropriate. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I didn't look too hard into that, but uh, it, it came to mind. Um, hmm. Ogden also mentions that uh, that for the most part, these diamonds were for men only, and they were thought to make women, quote, sterile and unhappy. Hmm. And he points out that while this notion runs against the general modern marketing trend with diamonds, which has European roots, um, you know, for, for, for the longest, uh, the durable diamond was considered the perfect gem to symbolize the masculine might of kings. Ah, okay. So it's like, oh, because the diamond is invincible, it makes people think that I'm invincible. I'm so strong. I'm so tough. Yes. <laughs> just ignore the part about how you can smash it with a hammer. And it just becomes a, you know, a million, almost, it becomes almost invisible when you, when you break it. Right. Now, um, a quick note on gemstones in general, uh, because we get into this whole of like gems and then diamonds. I decided to look uh, look this up in uh, Brian M. Fagan's 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Guess who his co-author is in the section on gemstones? It's Jack Ogden. Oh, okay. <laughs> so w- once more, the, at least partially citing Ogden here, uh, gems have factored into human jewelry since the earliest times. Though uh, the setting of colored stones, which were the preference for the longest, uh, with the move toward transparent gemstones not occurring till the first millennium BC with the rise of the Persian Empire, uh, the, the setting of colored stones was only possible once a fairly sophisticated metalworking industry was established. So they point out that for the longest, colored stones were used as, quote, blocks of pigment, uh, and, and this would be uh, inlaid in a metal form. Uh, the stones were usually cut to fit a particular setting, and it wasn't until later that the reverse would become the fad. Oh, okay. So if I'm understanding this right, it would mean like that originally gems were more like uh, just sort of a tool. They were one piece of artistic filler to to fill out whatever it is you're designing. But later on, they would come to be more of the focus and whatever you're designing would be based around the gem in it. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's the, the point I was taking from all of this. And uh, in addition to the rise of the Persian Empire, you also had other factors influencing the shift towards transparent gemstones. I mean, not that you completely abandon colored gems, but like sort of the, oh, the opening of, of, of the mind to the idea that, hey, these are beautiful as well. You have things like the conquest of Alexander the Great, which we'll come back to, and uh, a number of other factors that Ogden gets into more depth about in the book, you know, with various trade routes opening up and so forth. Mm. Now, according to Ogden, the earliest known use of diamonds in jewelry, and, uh, you know, of course, enormous caveat with all of this, you know, this is based on surviving written records, this is based on surviving artifacts and so forth. Uh, the earliest known use of diamonds in jewelry dates back to after 325 BCE in northern India and Afghanistan, following Alexander the Great's military conquest in this area. And the earliest diamond rings come from this region as well. Again, we have to go back to the caveat about metallurgy and uh, metalworking having to reach a certain point before you could really make much in the way of diamond rings and so forth. But uh, yeah, the earliest diamond rings come from this region as well. And this all leads to an influx of diamonds and diamond lore into the Mediterranean world, though their initial use in the Mediterranean region was for drilling and engraving other gems. So this touches on a topic that Ogden considers at length. You know, when do diamonds start becoming more than stones to be used in cutting gems? When do they become gems themselves? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I would wonder if it has anything like what what is the economic intersection between the value of a gem as uh, a decorative item or something that's prized just for its own sake versus the value of a gem that it has specific utility as a tool because as we know about the diamond being the hardest of all these gems 
it has a real utility. It has a real uh, direct use value. Yeah, yeah. And then again, like not all forms of carbon have the same value. <laughs> Other forms of carbon, you can't bring them into a diamond dealer and be like, hey, how much for this lump of carbon? Um, how much for me? I'm carbon. <laughs> What's the going rate? No. And then likewise, not all forms of crystal. Uh, are going to, uh, um, you know, command uh, uh, vast sums of money either. So Ogden points out that early written evidence for diamonds as gems, again, considered gems, uh, is a, uh, it can be found in a northern Indian text, often dated with some disagreement to 300 BCE. Other dating of the text may push the reference to the second millennium BCE or possibly to the fourth century CE. The text is called the Athasastra, or the lesson of profit. And it points out a few interesting ideas of, of the time period, again, depending on exactly when this would have been. Um, but a, a, few of the, a few of the ideas that were put forth regarding the value of a diamond. Uh, Ogden writes, quote, the list of diamond colors given in the Athasastra include cat's eye, um, sarissa flower, cow's urine, cow's fat, clear crystal, mulati flower, and then adds any other gym color, which is little help to us. Cow's urine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a humorous book uh, it, it, uh, as well. It's, uh, again, again, very fun read. But uh, also other uh, aspects of the diamond mentioned in this text. Uh, it's stressed that large, heavy, and hard diamonds are best. The best diamonds have symmetrical points. The best diamonds can scratch a vessel and... Not only do they sparkle, but they spin like a top. These are the the various, uh, not on their own, obviously, but you know, when when spun uh, by the uh, the human looking at them. Uh, these are all aspects of a suitable diamond, uh, ones that are are true gems and not something that you need to just break down and use for your gem working and so forth. That is interesting, and I, and I wonder where criteria like this are originally derived from. I guess some of it is just like intuitive preferences about anything that like, you know, bigger is better, heavier is better. Uh, I guess a, a harder diamond or a harder thing called a diamond is going to be more durable, it will last longer. But I wonder, like, it spins like a top. Why is that preferred? Yeah, I mean, I guess it just comes down to just the, um, the you know, the structural completeness of the thing uh, and, the, uh, and the symmetry of the thing, right? Um, but uh, but in general, yeah, it also you can't help but think about the idea of like just branding like someone's like, hey, we got to move some diamonds here. Uh, we got to move something. Why don't we start selling these diamonds? So let's just start start talking about just how pretty these things are and how, how you know, and, and figure out like what is the what are the best candidates to push forward as the new king of gems? Mm. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Now, at this point, I thought we'd talk about uh, one of the the, the most wonderful um, <laughs> uh, collection of falsehoods concerning uh, the origin of diamonds uh, and, uh, and, the, and the gathering of diamonds. And that is, of course, the Valley of the Gems. I think this is where we come back to Alexander the Great. That's right. Alexander the Great does factor into all of this. Um, uh, this myth is heavily associated with him. Uh, and but but also to be clear, it seems to predate him, and also would be retold many more times in various formats involving Marco Polo. It also po- pops up uh, as a story about uh, about the the hero Sinbad, uh, the sailor. Uh, so it it isn't just an Alexander the Great thing, but he becomes associated with the story. Okay, what's the story? Okay, so uh, and, and it mainly becomes associated with. Um, uh, with Alexander the Great through the uh, writings of the Greek philosopher uh, Theophrastus, uh, who lived 372, more or less, to around 287 BCE, uh, who wrote of the valley in his work De Lapidibus, or On Gems. Uh, and this is the one that uh, you know, throws uh, Alexander the Great into the story, makes him the hero of the tale, and also seemingly canonizes the involvement of snakes uh, within the story, a story that according to Ogden, seems to have pre-existed uh, this writing by many centuries as a folk narrative about this mystical valley of the gems. Mm. However, Ogden also notes it wouldn't really become like cemented as like part of the, uh, the quote, romance of Alexander till the 19th century. All right, so Ogden teases apart the different versions of the myth, but it basically goes down like this, okay? There's a valley out there in the wilds of India, and guess what? It's full of diamonds. Now, Joe, wouldn't you like to get into that that valley and get those diamonds? Uh, I want to get in that valley like a ball pit, just swim around in it. Uh, Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck it. Okay. Well, that that's understandable. They are diamonds, after all. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, these diamonds are inaccessible by normal means, uh, due either to the terrifying cliffs, uh, but also because uh, there's... There's, there are even worse things down there. There are a whole bunch of snakes, venomous snakes, in some cases, giant venomous snakes. And you don't want to mess with those. Do you still want the diamonds? Uh, let's assume that I am absolutely mad with greed. So, yes. Okay. In order to get these diamonds out, here's what you need to do. First, you need to get yourself some meat, a bunch of big strips of meat, giant strips of meat, as much meat as you can get together. Okay. All right. And then you're going to throw that meat down into the pit, down into the valley. Do you stand on top of the cliffs and throw it down? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd want to throw it down from above. You don't want to get down there because that's where the snakes are. So throw that meat into the into the valley, into the pit, because guess what? Those diamonds are just laying about down there on the surface, on the the floor of the pit, on the floor of the valley. And if you throw the meat down, you know what's going to happen? The diamonds are going to stick to the meat. 
Perfect. This is raw meat, by the way. This is not cooked. Uh, you don't don't, don't you don't want to throw like well done meat into the Valley of Gems. No, it'll be stickier if it's raw. Yeah. Now at this point, you're you're wondering, okay, I want the diamonds, but now I just spent all this money on meat and I just literally threw it away. Well, this is where the birds come in. The birds are going to swoop down and they're going to collect that meat, that free meal from the bottom of the valley, and bring it back up to the top to of the cliffs to eat that meat. I will remind you, still has diamonds stuck to it all over. Brilliant. Now, at this point, many of the the tellings indicate that what you need to do is scare the birds away from that meat long enough to peel off all the diamonds, and then you're going to leave the meat. The birds will leave you alone at that point. They don't actually want the diamonds. They want the meat. Uh, And then once you have the diamonds, you can run off and do what you will with them. I love this scheme. It's (laughs) it's, It's a diamond heist to beat them all. There are also versions of the story in which you have to kill the birds to get the diamonds out of their stomach. Uh, but really, I mean, who wants to go with, through with that? It, it seems much easier to just scare them away long enough to get the diamonds off the meat and then cash in. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in cases and uh, retellings of the story where snakes are involved, this is also sometimes used to explain why you should never put diamonds in your mouth because they, there may be lingering snake venom. And in some way, like that snake venom never completely leaves the diamonds and therefore to eat them would be to invite death. Oh, okay. So this would be a different explanation of the supposedly lethal mechanism of the diamonds. Because if you uh, didn't listen to the last episode, uh, the main explanation given by, at least by Benvenuto Cellini, was that the diamond, it's not actually chemically poisonous. It's that pounded up diamonds have all these little uh, sharp edges in them. And because they're so hard, nothing can like dull their edges. They will just go down into your guts and end up cutting you up from the inside. But this would be a totally different folk logic for why they are allegedly poisonous. They have snake venom on them. That's right. Now, in the second voyage of Sinbad, he uh, he actually escapes from the pit by strapping one of the pieces of meat to his own back. Uh, this telling involves the giant mythic rock bird. And the snakes are also giants that swallow elephants. Diamonds are also present. Is Sinbad trying to get the diamonds or are they just incidental? Uh, he is mainly just trying to escape at this point. So it's just okay. kind of a clever escape uh, scheme, I believe. But, you know, I, I, the, the voyages of Sinbad and so forth, I feel like those are stories I need to properly revisit. Uh, maybe we can find a way to explore them in a future episode. Hmm. But, uh, but again, this, this story is widely told and retold. Plenty of the Elder, of course, also repeats the, the myth at some point. Um, but I, at the end of it, I was wondering, like, well, what does it mean? Like, where does this story come from? Uh, you know, we we will get into another story later on, another seemingly fantastical uh, bit of folklore and myth that involves sticky things and diamonds. So I was wondering if that would have anything to do with it. But I ended up turning to an article by S. Tolansky from 1961 titled Some Folklore in History of Diamond. And the author here speculates that the story may have been originally circulated in some of its earliest forms by none other than Indian diamond miners to cover up the true source of their lucrative trade. Because again, diamonds are not coming from a valley. Uh, they're not just littered on the ground in a, in a place haunted by venomous snakes. Uh, you know, they're, they're mined from specific locations. You know, we alluded to the, 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 uh, the, the sources earlier. Uh, so perhaps this is a bit of misinformation that was popularized in order to throw uh, thieves and um, would-be miners off the scent. But it also raises the question, like even in in ancient times, um, it feels like uh, someone's, um, you know, uh, BS sensor would go off at some point. And they, they might realize, you know, I don't think that's actually where diamonds come from. And I know they don't want me to know where they come from, but it's something else. And I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Hmm. Um, so, so anyway, that, that seems like a, a one potentially valid um, hypothesis. But the author here also mentions another possibility, something that may or may not tie into it. Uh, he mentions uh, something that has been observed in uh, modern South Africa. Uh, he wrote, quote, For in South Africa, where the deep-dug mines have heaped around them great masses of waste, worked-out ores, it is known locally that the crops of fowls which wander and peck over this land 
frequently contain small diamonds. The chickens seem to have an eye for the shining pebbles, and a single fowl has been known to have as much as a total of five-carat weight of small diamond within its crop. Oh, okay. So the the crop, of course, is it's part of the chicken's digestive system, which, uh, if if I recall correctly, is not the stomach. It's sort of like a little side pouch. It's got like you know, on the way to the rest of the digestive system, the chicken can store stuff in its crop for a while. And so the uh, the idea here uh, w- would seem that like, OK, this would, would not 100 percent explain the idea. But if something like this had been observed in ancient times, perhaps it might have influenced the various uh, myth cycles that spun out of it. Uh, and therefore, that's why you have birds and giant birds and so forth involved in it. In some cases, you have the birds being killed and then opened up. And in other cases, it's just like, well, get the, the diamonds off the meat before the birds eat it. That's how diamonds wind up in birds, after all. That's an interesting possibility. Now, another interesting idea that I, uh, that I ended up uh, uh, looking at here concerning the diamond and how the diamond is utilized as, a, as an idea, as a metaphor, and so forth— uh, particularly in, um, in, in parts of, of India, uh, is the idea of the Vajra. So in Hindu iconography, you'll frequently encounter the symbol and legendary ritual weapon of the Vajra. Uh, you'll recognize it as appearing almost like a clawed talon with each appendage curving out and then touching at the tips. And the Vajra may be three, four, or even five-pronged. But it's not a claw. The finished symbol or artifact may resemble a closed lotus blossom. It is uh, especially common in the Tibetan uh, Vajrayana school of Buddhism, and uh, it can be translated as thunder vehicle, for indeed the Vajra is in many ways a thunderbolt, a divine weapon, and also the metaphoric uh, striking of enlightenment. It cleaves through ignorance like lightning. Uh, Indeed, in Hindu mythology, the Vajra is the weapon of Indra, king of the devas and a god of the sky that may be, I think, reasonably compared to other uh, deity traditions such as that of Zeus or that of Odin in uh, Norse mythology. Mm. But Vajra also can apparently be translated as diamond, for the Vajra is indestructible. And there is indeed a sense of a diamond to the shape of the thing as well. Uh, Sometimes the Vajra appears like a club or a scepter with a long handle. Other times, a ritualistic item with two Vajras, one on either end of like a handle. And you'll also find Vajras on the handles of a symbolic bell. Uh, And indeed, you'll also find it as a motif on the pommels and or the hilts of highly decorative swords. So uh, I found this interesting as well, this idea of of uh, of this thing going from like indestructible bolt of enlightenment uh, to a weapon of war, uh, but uh, involving like aspects of thunder and lightning and also aspects of the diamond. I should also add that in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, there's also an important sutra that is uh, generally referred to in English as the Diamond Sutra. Hmm. Well, yeah, th- this seems to connect to. Uh to things that have come up in multiple ways, especially like the idea of a diamond being a sort of pa- the, a symbol of the power of kings here if there is a diamond association with the the uh, mythical weapon of, of Indra. That's right, yeah. So, uh, and also I, I love that in this we get this more spiritual idea of the diamond um, as opposed to certainly the, the sort of the, the modern uh, you know, Western popular idea of the diamond that's very, and I guess it does get get aligned with ideas of love, but I don't know. I don't get a very spiritual idea of the diamond when I'm watching a, a diamond commercial on television. Like, it doesn't seem like, it's clearly not something that's coming from uh, from the, the realm of the gods. It's something that's coming from the diamond store across town. Think how much more interesting those commercials would be if they did the Valley of Gems with the snake yes. <laughs> and the meat. They, they, you had to get the meat in order to get the diamond. That's part of the process. Yes, yes, I can see it now. They can still have the, you know, the excellent music, the high, the uh, high production values. But let's get some uh, some diamond studded meat in the game. Let's get some giant birds. Let, let's get some snakes. Oh, There's a lot of fun to be had there. I want to direct these commercials. Valentine's Day is coming up. You see, a, you see like a husband going up to the cliffside. He's got the meat. It's like, you know, just <laughs> dripping all over his back. I guess he's got to have something to fight the birds with later. It, the, the, it's all coming together in my mind. Oh, man. Imagine, like steak restaurants, 
get in on this. This is great, great advertising for your Valentine's Day meals as well, your Valentine's Day specials, you know? Get people in for that steak dinner with the diamonds. Have the diamonds stuck to the steak. Ugh. We call this a Benvenuto special. <laughs> I felt it crash beneath my teeth. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. But we will be back with a with at least a third diamond episode because oh, there's more stuff we didn't even have time for. There's more stuff involving uh, various bodily fluids. <laughs> there's uh, we'll definitely get into some more myths. We'll get into some um, uh, some other topics, uh, cosmic, spiritual, you name it. Uh, we will return to it in the next episode. In the meantime, uh, yeah, we, we'd love to hear from all of you. Uh, we have a couple episodes on diamonds already. You might have some thoughts, some feedback on anything we've discussed here. Maybe you're a diamond uh, fan. Or maybe you hate diamonds. Maybe you have some sort of cultural connection with diamonds. Maybe you yourself work with diamonds. Uh, right in. We'd love to hear from you. Just a reminder that core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Short-form episodes go out on Wednesday, listener mail on Mondays, and on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.